1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to James Cheshire and Oliver Uberti about the new book Atlas of the Invisible maps and graphics that will change how you see the world an up- unprecedented portrait of the hidden patterns in human society visualized through the world of data. James, Oliver, welcome to the show.
1: Lovely to be here. Thank you.
0: All right. So can you tell us more about yourselves? So we're gonna we're gonna start with James.
2: Yeah, so I'm a a professor of geographic information and cartography at University College London. So much of my life is spent um, researching how new ways of analyzing data and new forms of data can be used to tell us something interesting about social processes and, and problems. And when I'm not doing that, I'm working on maps and graphics to try and tell stories from those data sets
0: and how did you get interested in cartography
2: it's a really good uh, question actually i don't ever think of a moment where i realized that i was suddenly interested in in it but i definitely had an interest in, in maps and a way that maps can communicate things and I was reflecting the other day we're we're just going through our department's map library which hasn't been touched for a long time there's all kinds of interesting discoveries there and I realized that when I was a first year PhD student I um, went on a rescue mission for old maps in another department and I don't really know why I felt I had to go but I went and I came back with loads of stuff so I think um, the interest has been there uh, for a long time. And then being able to work with someone like Oliver means that you can obviously create your own maps and, and graphics from data that you're particularly interested in. So, you know, it's a dual interest. It's learning from past maps, but also seeing how we can use maps to tell us interesting stories about the present, but also the future.
0: And Oliver?
1: Uh, well, I started out as an artist and painter and art school discovered graphic design and first job out of, uh, out of art school, I landed an entry level position in the design department at National Geographic magazine. And of course, National Geographic is well known not only for their photography, but of course, for their cartography as well. And being around every day these exceptional cartographers uh their storied um you know tradition of pioneering cartographic typefaces for labeling continents and rivers in you know really unique proprietary ways they're instantly recognizable as national geographic maps i mean you just sort of absorb all that knowledge by osmosis or at least i did and uh that you know, led me to try and where I could in the magazine, get my uh, hands into some maps, first doing some watercolor backgrounds uh, for maps, and then eventually, you know, um, know, art directing, even though I wasn't actually making them, art directing um, ones and coming up with concepts for maps. And then I started making some that were purely typographical. um, And one of those led me to uh, connect with James. It was a map about... Uh, the most popular surnames in the United States uh, by each state. And James had been doing research into that data for his PhD. And I had reached out to him to see if we could use that data to make a map of just, you know, no borders, no lakes, no roads, no city names, just filling the shape of the United States with names of uh, the most popular you know surnames in each state and coloring them by ethnicity and it turned out really really well we won some awards for that map and uh next chance that i had to meet him you know when passing through london i did and our collaboration together has been the result ever since
0: and how did you find this uh combination of art and science was it easy
1: um you know so this is a larger question I get by a lot of young students. It was a question that I had to face when I was considering where to go for school. And uh, there are tremendous art schools out there that are, are purely art schools, but I felt I've just always been interested in a really wide range of things. And so I was drawn to an art school within a larger university. So I went to the University of Michigan and there I imagine much like UCL, there's a great interdisciplinary um program where you know you're not only taking art classes but you have the opportunity to take other courses as well and I took a lot of courses um, involved uh, with history but also with environmental science um, some of which uh, took me uh, to Africa and to Costa Rica to learn about you know what was happening in the rainforest in terms of um, deforestation and climate change and other things Um, and I just just really had this uh, fascination with how the world works. And of course, that only intensified while working at National Geographic with all the incredible science research stories that come through. And I just realized that I had a knack for um, making complex science simple and visual uh, for the general public. And I continue even when I'm not working on books with James to help scientists visualize their research. I've worked with dendrochronologists who study climate change through tree rings. I've worked with geneticists who study the history of humanity through our ancient DNA. And it just—it's great fun for me to be able to listen to these um, real geniuses and experts in their field and then help them. You know, I, I can—I consider graphic design a social service. And I get to help them uh, get their message out to a, a broader audience who may not necessarily um, be reading you know, obscure scientific journals or even, even the most prominent scientific journals like Nature and, and Science. Uh, I can give them a, a broader visual reach both online and in, in books like ours.
0: And what would be your messages to our student listeners and early career researchers, uh, James?
2: Well, I think it takes um, quite a quite a lot of courage, actually. Sometimes to work, you know, the, the the to communicate the data and and the findings from your research, because you know, it may be that you've published it in an academic journal, but then pushing it into the wider world, particularly around topics that might be seen as controversial, perhaps, you know, the climate crisis being one, you know, some people, you know, will have climate deniers and so on uh, uh, conflicting or trying to conflict with what they're saying. Um, And so it takes some courage to kind of put stuff out there. And I certainly felt nervous doing it. Um, And So my advice is, you know, you should just go for it and um, hope that you have a kind of if you have a supportive environment around you with more senior colleagues who are willing to kind of back you and, and so on. It's a really valuable Uh, thing to do. And it's a skill that develops over time, being able to convince people and uh, inspire them by your work. So it's definitely something that's really important to do. And it's also something that you should work with others to do. I think this is something else that people don't always appreciate. They don't appreciate the value that, you know, in my case, you know, I'm an academic. And so I, you know, there are things that I'm not terribly good at you know narrative necessarily uh, it's not something that's necessarily something we're trained in you know and writing in an engaging style is not something we're, in, we're trained in but for someone like Oliver that is you know core to who he is and what he does so he can bring out the best in what I do uh, that I may not be able to communicate uh, as effectively and, and I think you know we don't all have a kind of a close collaborative relationship like Oliver and I do, but we do all have access to people in our kind of university media and outreach teams, even friends you know, who can tell us whether something's interesting or engaging or not. And so it's a slightly different process to say kind of academic peer review or even presenting in a conference or anything like that. It takes a bit of courage and doesn't always work out the way you imagined, but it is really important. And I don't think I've ever regretted any of the work that I've done that has reached a kind of a broader audience um, because I think it has always created new opportunities for me that then benefit my uh, research as well.
0: And Oliver?
1: I'm reluctant to give sweeping, you know, one size fits all advice, but there is a sort of common thing that James kind of touched on, which is to... You know, know thyself right um i the sooner you can really be honest with um what your interests are what actions you like doing on a day-to-day basis whether you like to work alone or work in groups or work with like one or two collaborators um the sooner you'll crack a lot of the bigger questions of like what should I do with my life? Like a lot of it comes down to just those simple things. And I fi- figured out pretty early on that um, I like my alone time to develop and work on, you know, art and, and research projects on a wide range of subjects. Um, but then I like to get together, you know, with editors or scientists or, you know, a collaborator like James, like a, you know, once or twice a week to share what I've been working on and, that has been a workflow that works well for me. You know, being in an office, really, if I'm honest, didn't suit me well, just I felt like there were constant interruptions and constant meetings and I could never get into that deep flow state that I really thrive in um, for being truly creative. Um, But as far as young students, if you're going to say, like, should I go to art school or should I go to a university? You know, it depends on who you are and what your interests are. If you've always been fascinated by, uh you know reptiles, um, but you also feel like you're an artist and you've, uh, you uh know, and I say reptiles just out of the blue because I'm thinking about my niece who's just you know been really fascinated with you know the animal world since she was young and um you know our second book Where the animals go is in part dedicated to her. Um, you know, if, if you're if you've got these wide-ranging interests and And you feel like you want to grow up to be an artist, you know maybe a, a university is the place to go. so you can you know not have to put all your eggs in one basket and you can you know uh, bring more things to bear when you sit down at the computer to design something or stand up at the easel or the drafting table. Um, and James and I talk a lot about keeping the well full. and I think as an artist, you know we, we talk and when we talk about art, we often talk about output, you know what the artist has created, but you really need like a lot of input. You need to be exposed to a lot of things, whether it's other art or travel or uh, just other sources of inspiration, um, in order to combine those things in creative ways to then create your output. So I think universities are great environments to just you know fill up on all sorts of stuff that you'll figure out how to combine later in your career.
0: So your book is Atlas of the Invisible, maps and graphics that will change how you see the world. So how did this collaboration come about?
2: Well, so um, this is our kind of our third book working together. So actually we started uh, in the early 2010s um, uh, with a book called London, the Information Capital, which really got us thinking about how data and visualizations can be used to tell us something new and exciting about the world. In this case, it was the city of London and how that was pioneering open data and data sharing and things like that. Um, and then we kind of moved on to something that Oliver was more interested in from his own background at, at National Geographic, which was looking at this big revolution in the way that animal movement and behavior was being tracked through bio-logging technology. So sensors fitted to small animals. Or large animals, in fact. And that, again, had the same idea about how data technologies, when visualized, can tell us something new and interesting about our world. So, this third book, Atlas of the Invisible, was. In an odd way, it's kind of a combination of the previous two in the sense that we're interested in a global perspective. There's quite a few environmental messages uh, in there, but it's still about how our understanding of the planet and of ourselves can be changed, can be informed um, by the huge amounts of data that we're now collecting. And so this book is really about showing how mapping and data visualization can unlock some of the hidden data sets that we don't see. And that's really what the word invisible means in this context. It means taking data that becomes that, that gets collected, but is often hidden in, in vast databases, uh, taking it out of those and visualizing it so we can all see what the patterns are and what the stories uh, are, are within, within those data sets.
0: All right, so let's get into the nitty-gritty of the book. And uh, James, you already touched up a little bit on that. So how would you describe uh, data visualization? Is it representation of uh, just the raw data or can you get something extra from it basically?
2: Well, I think data visualization is done well. Data visualization, looks kind of effortless and it enables someone to instantly understand uh, the story that is within the data that's being collected. Okay. So, you know, we talk about, you know, transforming data into information. So if you just showed uh, a huge collection of points that you may have collected um, that show, I don't know, the locations of people based on them where their mobile phone is, is for example, that's quite a common data set that gets collected now. If we just showed that as a huge point cloud, it would be impossible to tell a story from that and to understand what the patterns are. So the role of data visualization and what we invest a huge amount of time in is taking the patterns within those points, finding the story that we're interested in and then laying it out on the page in a way that is interesting and engaging. So. One of my favorite examples of this is um, we've got historic data from the Vietnam War and the extent of the U.S. bombing that occurred there, both in Vietnam, but also across the border in Cambodia. That had millions and millions and millions of uh, locations in it where the U.S. dropped their bombs. But showing all the data at once was was too much. It made no sense. And so we spent a lot of time researching uh, the, the history, pulling out the key data points about certain missions and all that kind of thing, annotating it, narrating it, kind of labeling it, adding arrows. And, and that immediately enables our readers to get a grasp of what we're trying to, to show. So visualizing the points in their kind of raw form uh, isn't always helpful. You know, It's going that extra step to pull out what the patterns are and what the story is that we really uh, spend our time uh, doing because we think that that's what people, you know, uh, most value in,
1: in the work that we do. Another key aspect of that, uh, those maps of the US bombing in Southeast Asia, was that they were maps, plural. Um, and as James was saying, if you did one map, it would just be a mess. But we decided to take the larger regional view and then use a gatefold that you could fold out and zoom in then on Cambodia at the national level. And then You turn the gatefold over and you can zoom in even further to uh, one specific battle that was the largest bombardment in military history. And so taking those maps at three different scales really takes this immense data set and breaks it down into three uh, layers, three levels of, of information for the reader to take in.
0: So what are some of the ways that data can be represented? Because most of us probably are very, especially scientists, are very familiar with those basic plots like bar graphs and just scatter plots. But looking in your book, which is completely just stunning, visually stunning, just such variety of different ways.
2: Yeah, I mean, and we try and include that a variety and you know, Oliver can can talk to, to some of the techniques that we use to kind of keep keep the visual interest. But I think the, the key message really is that um, some of the more straightforward plotting types, as you mentioned, like bar charts and scatter plots, they're still... Um, really important but what brings them alive is the thought that goes into how how we sample the data we're showing how we label them how we annotate them and, and so on and, and so actually if you're thinking about scientists it's not just you know things you might use for a, a popular book like ours it's actually you know things that you might put in a research paper to help reviewers and readers understand your data set so always pushing for more elaborate plots is not always it's not always the objective it's 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 sometimes using what what is kind of well known but but much better and so yeah we, we we kind of draw inspiration from you know historic maps as well to help us uh get more variety in there so one of the big things that we try and play around with is uh, map projections so often we're used to seeing a very standardized view of the world, say on a Google map that uses one type of projection called the Mercator projection. What if we you know, take another projection that focuses only on the world's oceans and splits the land up uh, in such a way that we end up looking at a single ocean view in the form of the projection or the Spillhouse projection. And that is still a map, but it's a very different looking map than say the standard Mercator one that Google uses. And so being able to adapt how we visualize our, our data to what the data is showing um, is really important.
0: And Oliver, what, what kind of elements are you focusing on uh, when, when you think about visualizing specific uh, data set?
1: Sure, so you mentioned bar charts and pie mm. graphs and things at the beginning. And um, to me, that's like, you know, you go to a store and you're, you know, walking down the aisles at the grocery store and you say, oh yeah, I'd like to get a stock up with some, I'm going to get some pie charts. I'm going to get some bar charts. We're going to make sure we get, you know, go get a few maps. And um, that's not at all the way that James and I approach our books, because that's putting all the emphasis on the form of your visualization first. And we do, you know, all most of our work, you know, is much earlier than that, you know, identifying our topic. Going to find data that uh, is available on a given topic, then digging through the data, doing some initial plots, and sometimes just looking at the rows and rows of data to see you know what patterns are in there, how things can be grouped, broken, are there outliers? We do research, we read the papers, we read other material on the topic to see you know what angle. Uh, we are gonna take on a given data set. And it's only then, after topic, data, and angle, do we start to think about form. And that four-part process of topic, data, angle, form has really served us well across all our books. And it's what allows us to see opportunities for new visualization techniques, because we've already decided, okay, here's the angle. Here's what we really need to convey to a reader. How are we gonna do that? Oh man, like many of the -the off-the-shelf visualizations, Aren't going to cut it. We need to come up with something new, and that's where you know maybe we're going to look at a less common projection like the spillhouse ones that James mentioned. Um, if you're talking about illegal fishing or ocean warming, like making maps that focus on the oceans makes a lot of sense for a graphic. You know that's about uh, say unequal uh, work, you know unpaid labor across the world in different countries between men and women and you want to show the disparity in how much you know paid and unpaid work men are doing versus women you you know there's there are different forms that you could choose that might get at that but i really like to employ visual metaphor whenever i can where like the actual form of the graphic helps convey the content of the story and so in my mind like when I said, what are we really talking about here? We're talking about labor, we're talking about work, we're talking about effort. And I just think about piles of stuff that pile up when you're working, whether it's piles of papers in an office or piles of laundry at your home, just like piles of stuff you have to do. And I thought, what if we could compare like piles for men with piles for women? How's a way we could do that? Well, we could use triangles. And triangles, you can calculate the area of a triangle and you can solve for... The length of the triangle. If you, if we say the amount of hours that uh, a woman in Sweden works and is unpaid every day, um, you know, is your area. Well, then you can solve. You know, I, I love geometry in school, and I can solve, reverse solve for the length of the triangle, and I can do that for all of these. And then you get these two triangles that almost look like an iceberg with, uh, you know, men on the left women on the right, and you can see that the the shift, you know, like an earthquake happened where, you know, the the, the side of the triangle that corresponds to women's um, work around the world is far greater and offset than than men's work. And um, I appreciate that this may be harder to grasp when described through words, but I trust that when you see it visually, um, you can see at a glance that, like, man, you know, women are doing so much more work than men in India uh, compared to some more equitable countries in Scandinavia.
0: That's a really interesting approach, uh, the whole process. So when and how do you ensure that uh, the plots, the graphs or the output is not too overwhelming?
2: Well, I think this comes back to what I was saying before about pulling out the key bits of information that people need and then doing the work for the reader to um, for, to allow them to kind of digest what's being shown. I think sometimes, um, you know, if, if something's complicated, then there's a temptation to just plot it and to keep it looking complicated and, and to put the emphasis on the reader to do the work, to understand what you're trying to tell them. Um, and so for us, you know, the emphasis really has to be on, on ourselves because we're the, we're the ones creating the graphics and we need to make it easy for people to understand. And that's not to say that we oversimplify, but that does mean that we need to take a step back and say, well, you know, if someone hasn't seen this before, what are they going to see first? What's the key takeaway? You know, are there different layers that we might, uh, uh, add, you know, is there something that you can take away when you have a kind of a brief glimpse at it, and then is there something you can uh, take away if you spend more time kind of pouring over it? So, it's really just keeping in mind that, you know, this isn't a, a book for us uh, to understand. It's really what the readers have to uh, understand that's so important. And so, you know, we 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 pull together kind of our collective experience. Um, to know, to see what works and what doesn't. Um, and then, of course, we have um, an editorial team, effectively, who are not familiar with uh, data visualization so much. Um, they come from more kind of traditional publishing backgrounds. They're used to like long-form text and that kind of thing. So actually getting them engaged and interested is really important as well because they really you know, act on behalf of the reader. And so if they don't understand it, then we have to go back and
1: try a different way. Yeah, I'd add to that. I just add to that. I mean, we've all been in a presentation where some speaker is pointing up at a PowerPoint slide and they say, as you can see here, and like much of the time you can't, you can't see the thing that they're saying. And, you know, we have to rely on our, our text and our graphics to do that work because we're never going to be there as a narrator in the room with you while you're reading the book. Um, so all that work has to has to happen. We can't just you know, fall back on uh, being able to talk people through it. And one way that I guess I can think about it, I don't know that I've thought about it this way before, but I guess I've been doing it implicitly is that it's you're making an argument. I mean, you're you, in the same way that say. Uh, a lawyer may have to make a persuasive argument and build a case. I mean, if we're trying to show something in a given graphic where it's about, you know, the extent of legal fishing patterns around the globe, or we're talking about, um, you know, you know the, the history of bombing in Southeast Asia, and we want people to understand a certain part of the story, like I approach many things with skepticism and I think many you know smart readers will too and um, they're not just going to trust you when you say as you can see here you know believe me uh, you really need to build your case visually and and a lot of you know as James is saying when we're talking about the story we're talking about how to walk people through whether that's different levels of zoom uh, if it's incorporating secondary, uh, graphics that complement the main graphic, whether that's a timeline or a secondary chart, but um, you know, clear thinking leads to clear graphics, and that's what we're you know really trying to do is is make a get a clear message across to our readers.
0: Oh, I love it! It's an excellent quote: "Clear thinking, clear graphics."
1: <laughs> Thanks. I left a pause there just in case it was a good one.
0: <laughs> right so uh, what a uh, few of your favorite graphs and maps that you decided to include in your book
2: it's a, a really good question um i don't know that i've ever i don't think i've settled on one or two favorites and i think it kind of depends what mood i'm in on any given uh on any given day i mean I, i'm i mentioned the uh, cambodia vietnam bombing um I'm, I'm proud of that because I think it really tells a story that we haven't seen in that data set before. And it took huge amounts of work to kind of bring it to the surface. Um, there's another graphic in the book um, that shows uh, the uh, heat gradient uh, over time. So uh, the increase in uh, global temperatures uh, uh, decades uh, by decade and um, many of many of the listeners will have seen the ed hawkins's climate stripes that show the kind of um, warming the planet's experienced this is our version of that but we've actually done it in a map form and i really like that because it demonstrates the power of maps to locators um in space as well as in time so rather than just have a single kind of um uh climate stripe for a particular area or even a single one for the whole world we actually get to see you know the fact that when we have a heat wave that heat wave is is no longer occurring in isolation it's not a warm area surrounded by a cool area on the earth's surface we're actually having heat waves on top of already um warm parts of of the world so that's something i'm uh I'm, I'm i'm proud of and then i think the final one is just visually the one i'm, I'm really like is we did um uh, a couple of maps showing the flow of ice once in the one is in the juno ice field in alaska and then the others uh, the entire continent of uh, greenland or at least the uh, glacier on uh, the ice sheet on greenland and that uh I just think it looks stunning the way that we've been able to show the particular flows and and tell the story about the ice moving uh, on that surface.
0: And Oliver?
1: Yeah, I got a two-part answer as well. Um, I'm very proud of a series of maps we did about the city of Flint, Michigan, which made the news in the past decade with uh, lead contamination in the water and the extensive effort to help the people there by replacing the pipes throughout the city and you know I knew some researchers at the University of Michigan who were looking into this to see if big data could help in the effort and they were able to work with the city to take all sorts of old moldering records and filing cabinets at city offices and digitize them to build a model with the age of homes and the value of homes and the location of homes and um, by feeding all this information into a model they were able to predict which parcels of land throughout the city were most likely to have lead or galvanized pipes. And of course, going around digging up and replacing pipes in every home in in any city is going to be hugely expensive. So there could be great savings to the taxpayer and just more efficient. And we can solve the problem faster if we can target the ones that really need pipe replacement rather than trying to do everybody. And so early on, as we show in a series of a time series of maps, um, we show the sequence of um, when the city was using the data-driven model and the high 70% hit rate, you know, success rate they had at, um, you know, finding lead or galvanized pipes where the model predicted. But then many residents who lived in uh, areas that weren't targeted by the model, wanted the peace of mind to know that their home was safe too. And in effect, they didn't trust the data. And so they were able to successfully lobby the city to abandon the data driven model and just start going door to door, digging up um, parcels of land. And predictably, the success rate plummeted to around 15% at enormous taxpayer expense. I mean, it's, um, and after about a year of just blowing money and not finding lead, uh, the city reverted to the data-driven model and the success rate went back up such that by the end of 2019, um, nearly all the lead pipes in, in the city, the lead service lines had been replaced. And so we, we try and we show this case step-by-step step of what happened, of, you know, all what the model predicted and then the success rate you when know, following the model and the lack of success when not following the model. And this gets back to what I was saying earlier about using maps to build a case and really walk readers through a really complex issue. And the visualization, which I haven't really seen anywhere in any major news outlet really felt like an exclusive, an exclusive win for us to be able to um, tell such a complex, you know, internationally known story in a completely new way that uh, really shows uh, the extent of the problem and most importantly, is a cautionary tale for mayors and cities the world over because infrastructure is aging everywhere. So we really think, you know, it's a good, good lesson about like, you know, trust the data. The second part of my answer is that um, while we have many exciting and novel maps and graphics in the book, we also wrote some really good text. Too. I'm going to give a plug for our writing and their essays in this book. And one of them that I'm really proud of is the one that kicks off chapter four, what we face a whole uh, chapter largely devoted to climate change and the century ahead. And James and I did a lot of research about the early days of weather observation and weather forecasting, And we found just an uncanny parallel with the doubt that what early weather forecasters in the 19th century were, uh, were faced with, Uh, the skepticism from the public and from government, from religious institutions that we could predict a rainstorm coming later this week. Um, Storms were thought to be acts of God and completely random. And it wasn't until, you know, a group of weather forecasts or weather observers started to plot their observations on maps that they could see if storms actually like can track across a continent and landmass and be predicted to hit, you know, say the East coast of the United States, 48 hours after they hit the Gulf coast of the United States. And in this essay, we draw those parallels between um, the skepticism that the early weather forecasters face and the skeptics that climate scientists, the skepticism that climate scientists face today. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of that work, there's some fascinating history about the early days of, Of of weather radar and early days of weather forecasting. And it just sort of, we take, we take our weather forecast for granted. We wake up in the morning, we look at our phones, we see, uh, you know, we're going to need an umbrella today. Uh, we dress appropriately, you know, we plan our, our, what we're going to spend, how we're going to spend our weekends based off of what our phones or our, our weather forecasts tell us. And I just, I think we're going to be in the same boat in the same in not too distant future when we think about the climate. Like, what if we could live our lives uh, and plan our lives based off of you know fifty-year forecasts in the same way we currently plan our lives on five-day ones?
0: Yeah, this is a very excellent illustration of how data can be used uh, for uh, you know positive things. <laughs> But can it be also misrepresented in visual uh, uh, plots and graphics, for example?
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, um, uh, we can easily uh, manipulate the data and the visual way that it's shown to tell a very different story. and of course, this is the always long been the challenge with um particularly with maps, actually, because people always trust maps. I think it's a form of visualisation that people, you know, uh, always view as impartial and, and purely kind of scientific. But, you know, Oliver mentioned earlier that we often make arguments and um, we support those arguments with data and we do that through visualisation. And, and that's a, an important thing never to to forget when we are, When you're looking at data visualisations, but also when you're creating them. So, obviously, in our case, we work really hard to represent the data in a fair and uh, reliable way. And you know, if there's something we're not confident in, so if there's a story we're trying to tell and we don't feel there's sufficient data uh, to support that particular story, um, or we don't feel that you know a particular angle. Uh, is appropriate uh, based on what the data is showing us then we won't uh, pursue that idea so you know in my uh, view everything we've done is kind of defensible so if someone asked me oh why did you show it this way or why did you sample the data in in that way or why did you select this data source and not that data source i feel confident in the answers that i Uh, would give to those questions. And I think that's another really important aspect here. We're able to tell a story, have a narrative, have an argument uh, uh, to kind of uh, push things on in in, in the data. Um, But we're also confident in in what we're saying because, you know, we want people to act on this book. You know, that's really important as well. So, you know, one of the final um, kind of paragraphs in the book is reflecting on Uh, A map we did of a giant iceberg that kind of broke off the Antarctic Peninsula and and spiralled into uh, South Georgia. And, you know, with all these things, we could just be spectators. You know, we could just look at this happening and not do anything or we could actually act on it. And so making the case for change is really integral to this because we want people to, you know, see what we've created, ask themselves about. You know, things they might be doing in their own lives, but also holding those empowered to account and then trying to make the world a better place um, rather than just simply, you know, creating eye candy that, you know, may be looked at briefly and then then placed on a shelf.
0: Were there any data sets that you wanted to include but uh, did not have space?
2: Um, well, there's, there's lots that we we had roughly uh twice as many ideas um as as we had graphics in the book actually so so we go through quite an editorial process where certain things we we do just never quite make never quite make it to the end for various reasons they might not be interesting they might not be engaging so i don't know what one, one one idea actually um I often refer back to because um, it's a good example of where sometimes it's best just to not do something, even though you've put a huge amount of effort in. And one of the ideas was um, using a variety of different um, technology to track myself around Uh, a trip I did in London. So basically I had like a smartwatch, I had my phone, I had various apps and I wanted to show how each of these things kind of tracks you in a different way and can give you a slightly different impression of what's happening on the ground because this is a kind of important Aspects of some of the new data sets we collect. So, I, on kind of a warm afternoon, did this big trip around London. So, that took like a few hours. And then it was a few hours to kind of process the data and create the base map and tell the story and add the images. And it was very personal because it was a trip that I'd done and everything else like that. Um, and we did it and we drafted it up to its kind of near final form. And then we just came to a point where we said, this just isn't adding anything to the book. This isn't telling us anything new that we don't already know. This isn't really, can't really relate this to other aspects of the book. So, you know, even though James, you know, you spent an afternoon uh, traipsing around London uh, for this. And even though we spent a long time doing the design and the cleaning and everything, we just can't, uh, we're just not going to include it. And so we kind of discard that one and there's a couple of other examples like that where they nearly very nearly made it to the end but they just didn't fit in the final thing because you know one of the other aspects of uh, creating a book is we we have a collection and so everything needs to contribute to the collection it's not just a single standalone image that we're creating we're creating potentially hundreds of images that you know have to be it, you know, their, their sum has to be greater than their component parts really to justify uh, creating a book. And so that's really what we have at the backs of our mind. So it's not just the individual, but it's also how that individual relates to other aspects of the book.
0: So where do we go from here? Will the more interactive and 3D data visualizations uh, take hold?
1: For us, doubtful. <laughs> um, we, we're really um, bullish on the book as a final form for our work um, you know you'll be able to pick Atlas of be Invisible off your bookshelf in 20 years and enjoy it just as much as you would today without having to update a browser or you know do any hardware upgrades or anything plus you know it always gives me joy when I see people crowded around a, you know, a coffee table or something looking at in the book and the way, you know, people can share and, and pour over the physical form of the book and the foldouts um, rather than just an individual person by themselves, you know, pinching and zooming on their phone. Um, yeah, I just, I find that there is a great world of opportunity for people who, Enjoy interactive data visualization design. I'm just not one of them.
2: Yeah, and I think um, we, you know, the 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 interactivity and the kind of the real time data. I mean, I think it, it has a really good role in terms of exploration. Um, but you, you you may notice that a few years ago, there's a lot of in the in the media. There's lots of interaction panning and zooming and all that kind of stuff but then in recent years that stopped and actually they reverted a lot more to more static images and that um, I think is because you know people want we're, we're talking about the process right and making sure that our readers understand that what the key takeaways are and so actually you know if you do a good static image that's 2D. It doesn't have to be 3D, but like a 2D image, you can you can create something that's quite powerful and and understandable, um, without making the reader have to kind of do all the work. Um, but if that reader is, I don't know, an analyst or someone working kind of in exploratory data, then that's slightly different. You know, they they might want to look at different angles and pan and zoom. So, you know, I, I think I think that's um, important. And then the final thing is is We have uh, a big advantage when we create uh, books because we have a single page size, you know, a single screen. (laughs) You know, the screen that we're looking at remains uh, fixed. We're not fiddling around with big screens and small screens and things like that that often, you know, is the case with online visualisation. So that gives us a lot more control. Um, And, you know, there's something to be said uh, for that. You know, just last night, actually, I was... Uh, in the department, so I was going through our, our map library and looking at kind of historic atlases and things. and I found one, I don't know, I think it was from the 19... It was 1950s uh, from Germany, and it was showing, um, you know, German population data. And it was these population pyramids, and they were gi- they're on a giant sheet of paper, but you opened the page and you could see straight away what was going on. When I was... Um, and I was interested, I thought, well, what does the population pyramid today look like? And so I went on the official German statistics website, but I was in a basement and I had like a flaky internet connection and the thing didn't load. And then I was looking at my iPhone and it was tiny and I was trying to, and it was interactive and I was trying to get it all to work. Whereas before me, I had this huge sheet of paper with everything I needed to know on it perfectly laid out. So it, you know. It's an old technology paper, but it's actually a a pretty robust one. And so we're very keen to keep using it um, for as long as, you know, people will keep publishing our books.
1: If I've ever tried to go back and look at something that we put online at National Geographic in 2008, I mean, I usually can't find it. Uh, Or if I did, like the technology we used in looks so dated and broken, um you know even just you know a little over 10 15 years ago um that even if i could access it i wouldn't want to or just you know in- affect my impressions of it um if it's even functional however like you can still go on to the archive and look at old issues of the magazine from 100 years ago and those maps look great
0: yeah, for sure. And it also probably touches on the point of clarity. There's much less distraction as well with the static uh, maps and graphics.
1: Yeah, and then the final point is like, you know, just basic workload. I mean, any newsroom or business, you know, is gonna care about their ROI, You know, their hmm. amount of engagement they're getting, you know, with the work they've invested into producing it and putting together and debugging, any of those interactive, you know, things takes a lot, a lot of work and a lot of team members. And if you're not seeing like viewership engagement increase because of all that, then might as well just stick to the static map. Not that static maps are like, you know, not a lot of work themselves, but it's just, you know, you may not need like, an entire tech team uh, mm-hmm. on board to help create it.
0: So then reflecting a little bit on the bigger picture. So um, how important is this clear and easy to understand uh, communication of data and science, and especially something that uh, we can take away from the pandemic?
2: Well, well it's, I mean, tremendously important um, because, you know, on one level, it's what enables scientists to make a case for their work, and to continue their work because they can communicate it and they can make arguments for it and they can see what the societal impacts are i think it provides us really strong evidence base for change and so being able to appeal to a really broad range of people is important you know a, a local politician is not going to have necessarily the skills or the attention span or the time to kind of read a scientific article and, and understand what's going on. Whereas a single powerful image uh, does that. And, you know, today when we're recording this, it's um, show your stripes day, which is the climate stripes that, um, you know, uh, uh, graphic, you know, it's a single very simple image and, you know, it's on the side of buses. It's, you know, in on football stadiums, it's all over social media. And it's all about starting a conversation about, you know, the warming planet. And I think that, it, you know, many, many scientific images or many graphics, you know, they don't necessarily kind of take off and reach a, a large audience. But the few that do can be immensely powerful. And um, that's why we should keep striving to, to create them.
1: Can I turn it, the question back on you, Galena, a little bit? Where did you grow up?
0: Um, so I grew up in Lithuania, which is on the east part of uh, the Europe.
1: Now I got, I was recently in Norway and I was talking with uh, a German scientist there and a French scientist, and we were talking about complexity, uh, in graphics versus like extreme clarity and information, you know, hierarchy, whether, and, 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 the German scientist uh, put out this hypothesis, and I want to test it. You know, on you coming from Lithuania, I'm like if there's cultural differences and cultural variations on the priority uh, in a graphic. So the idea was that it's more, he was saying that he thought American and perhaps British um, data visualizers really put a lot of emphasis on. Getting simplifying the point for a reader and, and, and dealing with short attention spans and, and giving one clear takeaway that a reader can can um, leave with or read first and then really downplaying the secondary and the tertiary elements of the graphic. So there becomes this real focus on uh, a reader's attention span and um, simplifying the message. Whereas he was saying that in Germany and, and the French scientist was backing him up, they really love to give you all the information on the graphic and let you pour through it and find what's important, you know, at your own leisure, rather than having the journalist or the cartographer choose for you what the most important point is. And I was wondering what your experience was growing up in Eastern Europe. Like, what what do you prefer when you're looking at graphics?
0: Oh, wow. That's an excellent exercise. And uh, I really encourage our listeners as well to have a think uh, about it, you know, Um, So a quick disclaimer, perhaps I'm not the very best representative because I'm autistic uh, as well. So for me, it's never enough, the details. So I would say that uh, perhaps, yes, um, even within the culture, we are very detail focused and uh, we need to see every nitty gritty of uh, all of the data sets. And what about you two?
1: Well, this was really illuminating to me when I had this conversation in Norway because what I thought might have been just my innate preference, I realized might be a cultured preference, a learned preference from the environment that I grew up in and the environment in National Geographic where I worked for a long time, where there was so much emphasis on making your point, you know, so clear that there's just one thing, you know, that a reader. It really needs to know, and then, you know, you can, you know, um, subdue all the other extra information and yeah, I think I still, I think I still feel that way. Um, yeah, I, I, I really like, cause, cause it comes back to that idea I said earlier about clear thinking equals clear graphics. And my mind is always all over the place. And data, graphic design and data visualization have been ways for me to organize my thoughts. And, and I find a lot of, I get a lot of satisfaction about doing a lot of research, learning a lot about a subject, and then clarifying it for myself so that I can then teach other people. Um, so I enjoy that process of, of organizing the information into a story rather than just putting it all out there for you to figure out.
2: I, and I, I think it's really important that stuff works on different, different levels. So, um, you know, uh, and so I, I guess my answer is I like a bit of both. So um, my, one of my favourite examples of this, and actually someone, something someone uh, else referenced is when they were talking about the book, is um, we have a kind of a global map of whaling, historic whaling data um, from US whaling logs. And you have a world map, And instantly you can see hotspots where the whaling was really intense, uh, intense. And so if you look at it for two seconds or even one and a half seconds, you instantly see pattern. Um, But then on top of that, we've put very detailed tracks of just a few ships that you can follow along. Um, And if you want to spend your time getting lost in the detail, you can on that graphic. Uh, But if you would, just want a quick takeaway. Uh, you get that as well, and so I think a lot of these um, uh, things are are really important. And I think you know, um, it's, it's it's very interesting. Um, you know, what, what you what, why you kind of caveated your answer by saying, "Oh, you know, um, because you're autistic, you're you're much more uh, of a details uh, person," and I think that that. Uh, you know that caveat is 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 important, but actually it, it's not always you know front of mind here because actually a lot of what we do has to appeal to people who want detail because actually a lot of our graphics there are people out there who know a lot more about the topic than we do anyway. You know they've devoted their lives to a particular subject that we're showing in a single map, and so we really want you know to be able to offer kind of reassurance i guess for the people that really want to get stuck in uh, to these things um uh, as well as kind of a a quick takeaway for for the people that are, are less interested um and yeah i mean the nice thing is um as i say this comes back to the point we were making about print i think the nice thing is we have quite a lot of control over the takeaways and the context and we can make sure that that important context if it's supporting text remains with the graphic and stuff one of the challenges with things particularly online is bits get cropped out bits get lost bits get discarded it and re-shared
1: so, with it, yeah. yeah
2: and so if you're someone who really wants the detail and you see something and it's not there, you you won't necessarily trust it or or you'll just discard it. Whereas actually at one point it may have been there, but it's now since since got lost. So um, that's another reason why we, we like print as a medium because we can retain this kind of level of control and we can be sure that everything we think is important gets included and stays with the map or graphic.
0: Oh yes, I absolutely agree about uh, the statics and the print. And it it really sounds like a piece of art, isn't it? To be able to balance all of these considerations of how deep into detail you want to go, or even trying to have layers of the detail in one plot.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we could spend another hour talking about Color theory and all the different considerations that, just from a pure graphic design standpoint, I have to balance in order to keep you know multiple layers of information, you know, in balance um, on the map. You know, how to warm colors popping forward, cooler colors receding, using neutrals and grays to you know dilute or subdue uh, non-subject information. Yeah, it's a it's definitely a challenge.
0: And what discoveries in your research and your journey uh, of writing your book, The Atlas of the Invisible, surprised you the most?
2: Well, that's a, another a really good uh, question. I mean, I think there were lots of small surprises, um, you know, where, in fact, every graphic, I think we wanted something that we thought was surprising or something that was a takeaway.
1: Yeah, um, otherwise it wouldn't have made it into the book. You know, we tried to choose only stories that we found surprising and hoped you Mm. would too.
2: Yeah, and I think Oliver earlier on
1: referenced some of the research
2: that we did and some of the essays and the the stories that we wrote. And I think one of the big surprises for me was to a certain extent, history kind of repeats itself in in so many ways. I mean, so many of the issues that we tackle, whether it's civil rights, whether it's um, colonization, whether it's climate crisis, whether it's how we represent the world, how we map it, all those kinds of things people have grappled with before and turned to visualizations for before. Um, We're just in an era where we have so much more data we can work with. um, And that's what makes it so exciting, being able to take some of those early ideas and uh, apply them in the contemporary context.
0: And did you write your book in person? Did you meet in person or did you do it over Zoom? We got together...
1: Uh, was it twice, twice, I think maybe three times. I don't know. It, it took, the book took four years to produce from pitch to publication. Um, and I think, yeah, well, that's not true. We both got married in that time and we both attended each other's weddings. So we stole a few work conversations during their receptions. Um, but as far as concentrated, uh, you know, side by side at the computer working time. I think there was that one long visit um, when I came to London at the start of 2020. And then as we write in the preface, uh, the pandemic broke out like, right then. And I I hurried home and got back to Los Angeles, uh, you know, just a few days before Britain locked down.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a truly labor of love then.
1: Yeah, we we spoke
2: basically twice a week every week we we meet and then uh and we've been doing that for years now and then uh, yeah the work in between so um the, the 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 trickiest thing is the eight hour time zone difference because oliver's always bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as we say having woken up and i'm kind of tapering off for the end of the day so mm-hmm. trying to uh, get ourselves in the same mindset is always the challenge when there's such a big time difference
1: Upside is that the production, you know, is round the clock. Then, you know, I can hand things off to James right as I'm logging off, and he's starting his day.
0: It's like shifts.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Twenty-four hours production.
0: (laughs) Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So, what are you currently working on, and what will be your next project?
2: It's a good question. So, I'm doing. I mean, I've got some exciting things happening, actually. At UCL, so I'm responsible for starting a new kind of institute around social data, so that's keeping me busy uh, in in some respects there. But um, Oliver and I are still working together, um, collaborating with some academics at the University of Oxford who are doing an atlas from finance data. So we're we're kind of working with them uh, to help visualize their ideas.
0: And Oliver? Oliver?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very deep into this project with the University of Oxford, you know, on the design end of that. Um, and then, you know, on my own, I'm I'm always helping scientists here and there with uh, their figures as well. And then I've got this sort of bee in my bonnet to maybe try a graphic novel of. So I'm starting to kind of gear up mentally for that undertaking, which may take the next decade of my life. <laughs>
0: Oh, sounds exciting. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
2: So we have a book website, which is atlasoftheinvisible.com. And I guess if people go there, then uh, there's links to our kind of biographies and personal work. And there's some links to educational materials and also where you can buy the book from uh, as well. So we've got... um, there's three editions actually now, and there's some more international ones coming. so we have a UK edition, a North American one, and then we have one in German um, so uh, Atlas des Unsigbaren has uh, come out in the last couple of months. Uh, each cover looks very different, but uh, the book contents are the same.
1: And you know there are editions on the way in Italian, French, Slovak, Spanish, Russian um, Korean, Chinese, Japanese. Um, I'm not sure when their publication dates are yet, but they're on the way. So if uh, I know you have listeners from around the world and we are, we're doing our best to try and get the book translated into as many languages as possible. Oh,
0: beautiful. Well, thanks to both of you for joining me today.
1: Thank you. Pleasure.